And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. MotoGP is about to resume after its six-week summer break, and I think the big talking point is going to be much like it was when we all broke off at Aston at the end of June. What is going on at Honda? What happens next there? And with Mark Marquez, uh, any of us on the Race MotoGP podcast going to be offered a Honda MotoGP ride for 2024 as no actual MotoGP riders want one? Could happen. I already uh, have. Have you, Val? Yeah, but I'm turning it down because I, I value my health. That. <laughs> yeah, take care of, of your spine and arms and legs and, and stick on the podcast. Well, there's, no, there's no chance of you being high-sided out of your chair unexpectedly during the course of this. Rec- you say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure at all. Uh, but yeah, domestic calamities aside, this uh, the, the, we're going to tackle the three big talking points going into the resumption of the 2023 MotoGP season at Silverstone this coming weekend. And the first thing, like I said, is the situation at Honda. Who knows what phone calls have been placed where during the summer break? Well, actually, we do know a few that have been placed because a team boss uh, has gone on the record talking about a phone call he got about uh, jettisoning his Hondas. So, Simon Fell, who wants to go first on the current state of play regarding Honda's 2024 MotoGP lineup? Well, maybe the place to start is just to recap the state of the 2023 Honda lineup, where three of their four riders went into the summer break uh, broken and you know, it sounds like one of those riders, uh, Alex Renz, has done enough damage to himself that he's not going to make it back for Silverstone as well, being replaced by Iker Lacona, which is, you know, we, we're we not used to big, serious MotoGP injuries anymore, really. And this is the second one that we've had this season where, where someone has missed, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks of the year. Um, The bike is incredibly difficult to ride. The bike is super aggressive. It snaps riders off, it high-sides them with no warning, it has no front feeling, and the result of that has been that you know we're in this position where everyone's always broken, no one wants to be there next year, and out of their four riders, it seems like, like we can fairly conclusively say that at least two of them are looking at very real, very realistic get-out-of-jail-free cards for next season, that we'll see them breaking contracts mid-season, and walking away to something else because Alex Renz is in fairly substantial talks, we're pretty sure, with the Monster Energy Yamaha team to go there and replace Franco Morbidelli. And Juan Mir, it seems increasingly, is reaching out to other teams, mainly Grissini Ducati, to try and find anything to, you know, to help save him. And the Renz one you can kind of understand, but you know, walking away from a Repsol Honda contract. The, the second Repsol Honda rider in three to walk away from a Repsol Honda contract mid-season says an awful lot about the state of that bike right now, where they're at with it, and, and just how hard it is to ride. Um, th- then there's Mark Marquez, which, you know, we know it's harder for him to leave because there's less clear options for him, and it's going to cost him a lot of money if he wants to leave. And like we're talking 
what eight figure number there it's it's a really substantial amount but um yeah it's it's really not a good time to be running a honda team in MotoGP, is it I got so excited at the start when Val jumped in to say he had been offered a 2024 Honda ride that didn't actually introduce us properly. So that was the wisdom of Simon Patterson. I'm Matt Beer, the podcast host, and now Val Harinci will probably weigh in next. I'm going to go straight on to this Rins Yamaha move. We've been talking for so many months about who might replace Franco Morbidelli on the second factory Yamaha because for every little bit of progress Morbidelli showed, there's still, to me, not been a convincing case for keeping him on if someone better is on the market now for most of the season it didn't appear that there was a better option but now it seems more serious that Rins could walk away from Honda does Rins at Yamaha make sense to you Val it sounds very tempting to me yeah perfect sense makes absolutely perfect sense would have made even would have made perfect sense even if the Honda was in a better state than it was makes perfect sense even despite the fact that Alex Rins is actually the only non-Ducati rider to win a Sunday Grand Prix this season it's just because there's clearly a mismatch between the status Alex Rins wants to have in MotoGP and the status he's being offered as a factory contracted satellite rider, especially within Honda, which I think Rins, if he's to be a satellite rider, Alex Rins would want to be basically equal in everything but name to the factory riders, which does not look like that's the case at Honda from everything he said during the first half of the season. And he clearly believes he's, you know, he's good enough to be one of the main men for one of the five factories. And Yamaha's, you know, Yamaha's the perfect spot for him. I mean, it's it's a bike that I think has been long regarded as potentially perfect for him. Although perhaps its latest evolutions may have taken it away from the Alex Rins sweet spot. But I don't know. I'd, I I still suspect he'd go quite well there. He is an upgrade on the current Franco Morbidelli. Honestly, I suspect he is even an upgrade on the best MotoGP version of Franco Morbidelli, even though the best MotoGP version of Franco Morbidelli, which is 2020, was really good. I still think Alex Rins is probably just a more reliably top-level rider that you can get for that seat, with all due respect to Franco. It, it, just, it really, really does make a lot of sense. The only wrinkle here for me is... I would have absolutely envisioned this move in the preseason. I would be shocked if I never brought it up in a podcast. I, I'm sure I have because it I'm makes sure you did, so much yeah. sense. He's a you know he's a square peg in a round hole. He's a factory level rider, not on a factory bike. So whenever a factory team wants an upgrade, here's your man. the The surprising bit for me is is it feels like if Rince stayed put, there's a very good chance of him just getting a Repsol Honda gig next season. He feels like a very logical person for Repsol Honda to target to slot in alongside Mark Marquez if Jean Mir is as disillusioned as his five million crashes suggest he should be. So in, in that sense, the fact that Alex Rins doesn't seem to be sort of hanging around for Repsol Honda, even though Honda's a bike he's already proven he can win on, but he's also proven he can, you know, snap his leg in half on. It then yeah, it still makes sense that he goes to Yamaha. This still this makes a lot of sense. Quartararo Rins, Fabio Quartararo, Alex Rins would be an A-class top-level lineup. A, a non-zero chance it'd be better than the bike, but at least there is sort of a clear route of improvement at Yamaha, where we know they're still working out how to add power. We know, well, basically it's that. We know that they're still working out how to get power. So they're, it doesn't feel like they're in as much of a hole as Honda because they're 
teething problems with this engine upgrade, I think were more predictable, more expected. Uh, I I see it. I see it for for all the parties involved. For Honda, it would be a a, a blow. It would be a serious, significant blow. But I mean, that's that's the situation when you know, it sort of it lucked into having two very good signings from Suzuki because Suzuki was exiting the the championship. I don't think there was ever a chance of it hanging on to both longer term, but now there's a possibility that they're not going to hang hang on to either. Simon's array of facial expressions during the course of uh, Val's chat about Rins were fantastic, but there's two that I really want to draw your attention to. One one was when Rins's win at Kota was mentioned, and Simon did the same face I did, which was that actually <laughs> happened, didn't it? That just seems like such a parallel universe, ridiculous event now. But yeah, listeners, that really did happen. He won on a Honda at Austin three, nearly four months ago. Um, but the thing is, like you say, Val, Rins is currently a hot property because everything he's done in the races he's been in recently has been very impressive. Now, we haven't seen him for quite a few months, really, because of the state of Honda and and, and the injuries. But, you know, he won at Kota and the end of last season with Suzuki was superbly impressive. And you talk about Yamaha being on a kind of perhaps the right course with their upgrade, although some of Quattararo's comments suggest he's not convinced they are. But Rins has been through that journey with Suzuki of this bike needs more power to solve its problems. We've put the power on. We're not getting the results we want this is what we do to now get those results. And that's why Rins ended last season with, with a pair of impressive wins as Suzuki headed out the door. That is just a, you know, he's, he's got good pedigree from Suzuki from helping, of helping the manufacturer sort out the bike and sort out the engine specifically, I think on two separate occasions, the wrong engine homologation situation of 2017, was it? And then more recently, the added power of the final Suzuki season of the years that I no longer remember what it was. 2022, it was last year. Last yeah. year, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been a while. Um, <laughs> he's, he's just a really good signing. I mean, I, I again, I probably have brought this up before, so I'm a little bit wary of self-plagiarizing, but it's just the only way I see it. I I, I thought Yamaha should go for Johan Zarco, but if Rins is available, Rins is just that same thinking, but the rider's younger and has a higher ceiling. Yeah, faster, Boom. basically. Brilliant. Same theory, but quicker. Yeah. Also, you talk engine homologation. Well, I think Andrea Iannone's back on the market again next year, isn't he? Is, is that? Oh, my God. Okay. No, Good thanks. Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, talk about Mir as well. That, it no longer sounds so ridiculous for a proven MotoGP world champion on a Repsol Honda to be looking at what the Grassini bike that Fabio Giantoni did... Try that again. Fabio Di Gianantonio is on at the moment. Still not successful, but let's leave that one in. Let's yeah, not both fantastic. In. I, yeah, <laughs> not, I, get, not I, get, I get so much abuse when I uh, ask for a re-record when I fail to pronounce a name. So I'm just going to leave it in. Um, that bike, that's the eight, that is eight in Ducati's priority at the moment, and that is the bike that a proven world champion on a Repsol Honda wants to get himself on and instead potentially. And it genuinely, it seems like it would be an upgrade, and that Mir's results would be better if if he could make that move. And I say that doesn't seem as ridiculous an idea as it would have done a couple of years ago because we've got so used to Honda being a team that is not working that riders want to get out of. But it's still still pretty high up the madness scale, isn't it? My theory for Mir is that he. He can work at Honda, like he. It's not a a no go from from the beginning. It's just a, a confluence of events has just snapped his confidence in in many many pieces, 
and maybe including even like from the very start the fact that he i think wasn't able to bring any of his crew with him to honda is that correct yeah so that was already not a great start he was still sort of finding his feet on the bike i think you look at the preseason you look at portimao those were those were good rounds they were there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff there to to look at and to go this is this is the path forward this is where he can improve from and this is already a, a decent baseline level and then he just started crashing over and over and over again and like the confidence just went uh maybe he doesn't feel he has the time maybe he doesn't just doesn't feel i mean the simplest explanation is he's just afraid of getting hurt and he's been hurt and that would make a lot of sense i mean I don't think there's anything more effective at sapping lap time than the fear of crashing, not understanding why you've crashed and sort of doing any wrong move that sends you off and being unable to recover it and then ending up with a broken finger, broken hand, whatever. I mean, that's going to automatically take off a few tenths, I think. And I would not be surprised if that's exactly what's happened with, with Juan Mir. I, I, think, I think this is workable, but I had the same opinion with, you know, I think we we went through the exact same sequence of events with uh, Jorge Lorenzo in 2019, where if you squinted through a few rounds, you could kind of see an option for him to figure things out on the Honda, find a bit of pace, these get to first a respectable level, and then maybe even beyond that. But then he just he had two big crashes, and it was gone, and he was just not not interested and not able to extract the pace and not interested in pushing hard enough to figure out how to extract it because the risk was too too much to his health. And I think the fact that Joan Mir sat out, how many was it? He sat out Saxon Ring Race and Assen, right? And Mugello too? Did he did he back out before the Mugello start? Yeah. So yeah, he, he sat out multiple Sundays with an injury that I think he was originally declared fit with fairly standard which, again declared fit yeah there's a lot we can say about that but yeah it means nothing i think there there will be reservations from joan about riding the bike at any anything but 100 percent fit and maybe about how much he can push and how much he feels confident to push and how wary he is of just injuring himself again because he will also have seen the Alex Rins thing. He will also have seen the Mark Marcus thing. He's got the internet, even if he was in no location. He will have seen all those crashes and would have gone, oh no, oh no, 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 no. I do not want to be the next one to do that, even though that is currently his job. So I I also like, if, if a divorce does happen here, I also do very much understand it. I do suspect he would be going better on the Grishini Ducati. Uh, who's on that Grishini Ducati again, Matt? Fabio Di Giantonio. <laughs> That's pretty close. Yeah, that was all right. Uh, Di Giantonio. Antonio. Yeah. There has to be an Antonio yeah. at the end there. I was really pleased I got through the first few syllables. All right, so I just looked, I took that as a win. <laughs> There's a lot of syllables poor, in that it? name. We don't. We don't have many people with that surname in the West Country. Exactly. Just call him Digia. It's easier. Um, for, for me, Juan Mir is a super intelligent guy. Um, and I think he's realized the level of the Honda and just isn't taking risks because why would you? He's seen what happens when the other side of the garage doesn't understand the level of the Honda and takes risks anyway. Mark Marquez breaks himself over and over again. And I don't even think Mir is trying as hard as Mark and he's still getting hurt. So, you know, what's it for? It's for nothing at the minute. 
because the bike just isn't capable of of winning um you know what these guys mentality is like a lot of the time you might as well be 22nd to second if you're not winning and and i think Mir is absolutely aware that he's on a bike that can't win um i'm glad you mentioned val that, that one of the problems at honda at the very beginning for him was that he wasn't able to take any of his crew with him because it's also worth noting that should he take over fabio di gentonio's seat at Grissini Ducati, he would also be reunited with his world championship winning crew chief, Frankie Carcetti. And I think that part of this whole problem is that he's missing a bit of comfort around him. Um, I think that we, we know from the past um, that, that Mir is someone who takes a bit of time to get the bike working the way that he wants and the bike set up the way that he wants. I know he, he puts a lot into ergonomics. And I think that he's arrived at Honda and discovered that he's very much playing second fiddle and that he is not a priority here. And I think that the, the chance to be reunited with people that know who he works, how he works, sorry, would be a, a big draw for him. The, the other thing is that, you know, right now that is Ducati's eighth most important bike in the grid, but we've seen the way Ducati works. And if he starts to perform in that bike, the way Enea Bastianini did, uh, you know, Bastianini arguably started last season, on the eighth most important Ducati in the grid, and before too long was was you know the second rider within the factory and got a factory seat out of it. They they will throw resources at someone if that person's performing because they don't really care which Ducati is winning as long as the Ducati is winning. It seems so. I, I think he'd go in knowing that, and yeah, for me that's it, it. Would not be a bad place for him to find himself even if it's only for a season to kind of reset the clock and get back to, you know, a bit of the form that we're all pretty sure he's capable of because he won a world championship after all. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. So we talked about a few riders leaving Honda. Could probably see that coming over the last few months. Then the prospect has cropped up recently of a team leaving Honda, which was an absolute bolt from the blue. Val, you stuck your hand up very quickly with this one. Tell us about the LCR situation. Yeah, so it's come, it's come out through multiple media reports, and it was confirmed by Lucio Giacinello, the team boss himself, to Italian outlet GP1, that he has had a call from KTM. KTM obviously scrambling right now to figure out a solution to its five riders into four seats dilemma. Uh, yeah, I mean, Cetanello has you know, played that down pretty substantially, as have KTM, I should say, because I think KTM and Speedweek said that 
they're they're worried that if they succeed at luring away LCR, that can then have a knock-on effect on Honda just going, okay, we're done with MotoGP. And and sort of Yamaha doing that too. There's a concern from KTM, at least publicly pronounced, about the longer-term future of the Japanese bikes in the championship right now. Uh, it's hard to imagine LCR away from away from Honda. I mean, from basically all of my time working MotoGP, LCR and Honda have been part of the same project, part of the same program, and LCR has always seemed pretty close to Honda, even as, you know, maybe Ducati has... Uh, blaze new trails and how closely you work with your customers it, it, it has always seemed that honda has leaned quite heavily on lcr when cal crutchlow was there and having him help develop the bike um obviously it's also a place for its japanese prospects like well takanakagami but now ayogura with the idemitsu backed ride um i think jeshanel didn't outright deny it as a possibility but has came as as close as possible so maybe the door is left very slightly ajar but really hard to see really hard to see but even the fact that there's at all talk of that is it's very interesting as the, the prospect of lcr ktm or would it be lcr i think it would be lcr husqvarna if it happened lcr husqvarna yeah and it's, it's an interesting prospect and maybe the motor grid would gain more from having two extra rc16s right now than two extra rc2 on three vs but probably not ideal for the longer term prospects of the championship in terms of the balance between the European and the Japanese manufacturers. I think it's the best thing that could happen for the championship because it puts two, I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit. It would, it would put two more competitive bikes on the grid because the Hondas are not competitive right now. So it's going to produce better racing. It would give us the opportunity to potentially see Mark Marquez on something different, which would be, phenomenally interesting um it would make sure that augusto fernandez who has had a really good rookie season gets a well-deserved second season and most importantly i think it, i i don't believe and i wrote about this last week in the site i don't believe honda are going to leave MotoGP. they're not suzuki the whole business is different the whole model is different their amount of bike sales is different but i think it might give honda as in honda japan the the kind of shot across the bows that they need to wake up and realize that they need to change how they run their MotoGP project. I mean, if, they, if they've not been jolted after the Saxon ring, they're they're in permasleep. But I, but I don't think they have, because I don't think that results are what Honda and Japan necessarily see. I think that they'll see this as a form blip uh, because they're, they're, you know, they're strategic thinkers. They're thinking on the bigger picture and they'll be thinking, oh, we've had bad runs before, it'll come back, etc., etc. Um I don't know how much of Mark Marquez's comments and actions at the Saxon Ring will have been allowed to have been seen in the Honda offices. <laughs> yeah. It's not exactly something that, you know, I doubt that Alberto Puig is sending the video clips of him giving the finger to the onboard camera to Honda management to say, hey, look, we got some TV time today. Honestly, I think um, he might be. I would not be surprised but, if that's something else. But they may have his, they may have his email. Well, I mean, if one team boss yeah. is, right? If one team boss is. But... Um, you know, for for me, yeah, there's a there, there needs to be a shake up in Japan when it comes to MotoGP, and I everything I've seen so far hasn't done it. So, you know, maybe maybe suddenly losing their satellites and having to win them back would be the the thing that we did. I should say, uh, in terms of 
I see the the shakeup argument. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, it still it doesn't strike me as the path of least resistance of just adding the two KTM's to the grid. Like you just 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 let the Yakiayo team in. Just do that. Nah, I I know I know there's financial consideration and other considerations not to do that, but that does feel to me like the easiest solution because the grid still then stays within the bike numbers that are reasonable. It's not as if it would push the grid beyond what is currently safe. Safe. Um, and it would be it would be very interesting. First of all, it'd be great to keep Augusto Fernandez on the KTM. KTM, by the way, has said that Augusto Fernandez's option for next year has been picked up, but I've, I'd, I'd love to see what that exactly means and what option it is. Is he going to go ride motocross with Jeffrey Hurlings? Where are you going to where are you going to fit him in? No idea. Um, or are they somehow yeah. just just to recap because we haven't we haven't mentioned the name Pedro Acosta out loud in this podcast yet. So just to, for any listeners who are not up to speed on the situation, KTM has effectively kind of promised Pedro Acosta its Moto Two sensation. And Polis Bagaro and Augusto Fernandez and Brad Binder and Jack Miller rides in 2024 in MotoGP. That's five riders. It has four bikes right now. So that is why KTM is effectively shopping for a solution. And now, in theory, they're all under contract, which is, I mean, that's it's approaching Honda 2000, whatever it was, nine <laughs> levels of the three <laughs> three works bikes. Bonus entry, it's also bike. Yeah, which I'm not entirely convinced would fly right now but yeah that would be i think the best solution and then with that obviously the prospect of mark marquez on a ktm which is just this is not to to be anti-honda in any way just more interesting i think all of us would really even if the honda gets good i think it is more narratively historically interesting to see marquez on a on a different bike if you don't have a personal investment in any of the brands taking part and you know ktm has been very sort of very, very intent on playing down any possibility of going after Mark, well, definitely for 24, but also beyond that. I think KTM CEO Stefan Pierre does like to say that the the salary that Mark commends and the pressure that he creates are a problem and that, you know, if you get Mark in, if he wins, it's the rider winning. And if he fails to win, it's the bike. So it's, you know, it's in a way, it can be bad PR. You know, Mark is so popular and such an attention magnet that I, I, I think everybody understands that it's good PR. It is good PR. It is good for your brands. It is good for your sponsors. It is good. And I think if KTM was somehow granted an extra two bikes, it, would, it makes all the sense in the world for all the parties to just agree to have Mark on one of those bikes. But that's not something KTM will publicly say until there's a clear route. But again, you know... I, I'm sort of, I'm speaking for them and maybe I shouldn't. Maybe maybe there is a genuine belief within at least some parts of the KTM setup that no, I just don't need them. Yeah, I I can't see that at all. I think there's the two elements, like you say, Val, the PR boost of being able to say we have lured Mark Marquez away from Honda. That is, yeah, that's enough in itself. Almost regardless of the results that follow, you've got that here. You can yeah, deal with the rest later. And also... Okay, KTM Top Brass have raised a sensible question mark over whether Mark Marquez is, is the rider he once was. Both, well, their their argument was about how the riding style is changing around aero, which is you know a valid point alongside his injuries. You can't afford to be the to let somebody else be the team that finds out Mark Marquez is still as good as he was. If you've got the chance to eliminate that risk and try him out yourself, 
that's a much better position to be in. And this this is where it feels more like it's it's a standoff now between KTM and Dorna, with Dorna saying, no, you can't just put some more bikes on the grid. We're not going to pay for that. And uh, and KTM saying, okay, we'll try and poach LCR and solve the problem. But I think from Dorna's point of view, Dorna is going to see Fernandez as basically expendable. There's not a lot of gain for Dorna by having him hang around on the grid another year, even though he's doing well. The overall series promoter doesn't, doesn't need to be fussed about that. That's just one rider. Whereas... KTM are rightly quite impressed with what he's doing. I'm I'm starting to wonder if the KTM don't want Marquez because it proves that it's just the rider argument is starting to be eroded by Brad Bender. Um, I think the fact that you know that has always been the traditional KTM excuse, but I'm just wondering if you know the fact that other people now are doing really well on that bike, the fact that Bender's regularly at the front, the fact that Miller has came in and sort of suddenly been arguably as fast on it as he was on a Ducati means yeah. that KTM have, have done the work now um, and they've proven that, you know, Mark Marquez is just the final piece of the puzzle rather than the, you know, rather than the, the sort of the, the sticking plaster, the, 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 the booster that they needed to actually be competitive. Yeah. It's not because it, it, it can't be a Rossi Ducati level failure. Just cannot be because no. this KTM is already better than that Ducati proven in other riders hands and the fact as you say the fact that jack miller is borderline as good on the rc16 right now already as he was on the ducati i think not not quite as good but not as far off as you would have expected especially accounting for the adaptation i think that speaks volumes about the quality of the job done at matigoff and and you know the the quality of the ktm rc16 uh yeah it that's it doesn't it doesn't particularly wash with me as an argument i don't particularly like it but it is it is something they say yeah i i like i don't like it i don't think it, it makes a ton of sense and i don't it feels like when you know you watch some other sports and maybe you have an a, a player join an already strong team and you feel like they're sort of they're cheating by coming together to sort of i don't know pervert the competitive balance and just fake their way to a championship that that does exist in some places that shouldn't be a thing in MotoGP in any or basically in any sport but particularly in MotoGP it is I think your duty as as a factory your duty to us as the people who watch it and take it seriously and think so much about it to go get the absolute best rider you can I feel you have to do it and okay if you genuinely doubt that Mark is that anymore if you know if he's too expensive to get for what he provides, etc. Yeah, fair enough. But if he if he offset if he does something to the balance in the team, yeah, fair enough. Don't do it. But if it's just a PR thing, if it's a PR concern that somehow you put yourself under too much public pressure, that doesn't work for me particularly. No. So on that topic of it being the manufacturer's duty to go out and get the best riders they can, let's keep this brief because I don't think the list will be very long. Who do you think will be on a Honda in MotoGP in 2024? Well, let's let's bring up the Iker Lacona thing a bit more because that's suddenly a very important consideration, even though Iker's having a, a fairly rough second season World Superbikes after a really pretty good first season. A second season, I think he's had injuries this year. Just changing the bike hasn't really kicked on. I think Javi Vierge is now closer to him or even ahead, which wasn't the case last year. But at the same time, Lecon has now had two Honda stand-in rides because, of course, he has because 
regular Honda riders are never available and always in the in the hospital, so obviously. He will have a third one now at Silverstone. This will be the first one with LCR rather than the main Honda setup. So in, in place of Alex Rins, who is still recovering, Schwannier will be there as, as part of the Honda factory team. So in theory, they could have called up Stefan Bradl, and they haven't. They're calling up Iker Lekwona. And to, to do that call-up, Iker Lekwona is missing the Suzuki 8 hours, which he won last year with Honda. Uh, was it Takumi Takahashi and Tatsuta Nagashima? This year it's Takahashi, Vierge, and now Nagashima has been called in yeah. to replace Lekwona because of Lekwona's MotoGP call-up, or at least that's how they're making it sound. So this has to be serious. We, we, we don't have it said out loud, but this has to be like basically an audition type of thing because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. Like clearly you want to put Iker Lekona in a seat that you may have to put him into 2024 full-time in that LCR seat. Clearly you want to introduce him to LCR because you're you're yanking him from the Suzuki 8 hours for this. This isn't just any replacement ride. And he's been pretty good in his replacement rides. I think they've left a fairly decent impression but you have to you have Iker is somebody where you have to have more data on him just always basically I think he was also really good debuting with the KTM RC16 back when he did standing in for the injured who I don't remember maybe Miguel Oliveira I'm not entirely sure but he was pretty good from the get-go and then never really jumped much above that and you have to sort of see whether you're going to see that clear progression that makes it worthwhile to bring him into the fold for 2024 is how I would see it. But it is it is very telling that, I mean, maybe I'm misinterpreting this, but this feels like Honda's having to hold in-season rider auditions and is being able to do that because none of the riders are fit. I didn't answer Matt's question. My my my. You kind of did. I'll answer. I'll answer Matt's question. Know that you know that you've had that. I'll answer Matt's question. Uh, Takanakagami, Ayogura, Mark Marquez, and Iker Lacona. And who goes to? Who's in Repsol colors? I'm not picking who's going to what team. <laughs> <laughs> All Japanese lineup at Repsol. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd I'd put I'd put Taka to Repsol because. Why not? Yeah. At least he's the guy finishing races and the guy with a bit of development history of the bike. And, you know, maybe, you know, we know that when Mark Marquez was injured in 2020 and Taka essentially became the team's number one rider, they put a lot of focus on him at LCR and it seemed like the bike got better under his guidance. Yeah briefly and then it got a whole lot worse again so so why not put him at Repsol and have him as the focus you know have him leading development or at least helping to lead development and see what happens because let's be honest nothing else is you know going to work otherwise they're going to throw in someone who has no experience of Honda Mm -hmm. and then we're going to be in the Jorge Lorenzo Paul Espagaro Juan Mir situation of having to learn the bike all over again which is a season wasted for a one-year deal at the end of the season when, you know, everyone's contracts are up anyway. So put in the guy who knows the bike and just see what happens. Yeah, uh, my 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 estimation would still be Mark Joanne in the Repsol team and uh, Iker Lekwona and question mark, question mark, question mark in the LCR <laughs> team. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if, if Ayagura... I'd put Ayagura in there. And this is, this is not... so If Ayagura wants to go in there. Well, even if he doesn't, I'd put him in there. I'd be like, no, nah, you got to do it. Man. 
Uh, which, yeah, yeah, it's fun that Simon has Taka in Repsol, which, by the way, I like as a prospect. I think I would feel really good about seeing Taka Nakagami in Repsol colors. It just, it feel nice. It's one of those sites that you feel like you, you want to see, which, unfortunately, I think even if he's relegated to Test Rider role, we're going to see that site because one of the Honda Riders is going to, like, break a finger or something, and there's Taka Nakagami in Repsol colors. There you go. I uh, hope not, but... I'm guessing that'll happen. If, if they put him in the Repsol team, yeah, that's fine with me. Wouldn't have much of an issue with that. It, it sound, you know, there's been rumblings all season, right? That Johan Zarco might find himself as the odd man out in Ducati's Workshrider setup. I mean, he's the one without the contract. He's the one where, you know, that Pramac ride, Ducati may want to give to somebody a bit younger to evaluate them and try to shift Johan to, to World Superbikes. I mean, that's quieted down a little bit, but I, I don't feel like it's entirely gone away for good. If there's any route there, am I Johan Zarco's agent? <laughs> I might be Johan Zarco's agent, but yes. Honda, go for it. Seriously, there's your other Repsol Honda rider. If, if you don't have anybody under contract, there's the guy. You already had him on the LCR Honda back in you know after his split with ktm you gave him a a trial run with the lcr he was okay he probably should have got the vacant repsol ride that jorge lorenzo vacated i mean instead of went to alex marquez who was then replaced before he'd done a race lap so you might as well have given johan a run out i think and then brought alex marquez in through lcr later on i think i think he would make a lot of sense I mean, would he agree is <laughs> a different question, but he's a, sort of that outside Ducati, now expertise, his experience, uh, his, I mean, his current temper as opposed to his KTM exit temper. <laughs> he would just make a ton of sense to me. Again, this is the second time I've brought up a Johan Zarco move. I was going to say, every time we of. have a 2024 debate, you play Zarco somewhere. And I was going to mock you for it, but then actually, I do think when, when Zarco was on this kind of post-KTM meandering, okay, he ended up at Ducati and that's worked out rather well, but there was a little Honda interlude when it looked like that might be his situation. I do think that's a bit of an unanswered question. Like, what contribution would he have made there? I think it would have been been a good one, so I'm going to, I am going to allow you that. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's better that than have him off the grid. Yeah. I don't think it's time yet. So... Do you think he could be winning World Superbike titles, though? Also... Um, I still Nakagami at Repsol Honda. I still I haven't. I'm kind of in a bit of a daze over that idea. <laughs> I don't know. As as much as it was a nice story in, in 2020 when they put some faith in him and he started delivering, he started hinting at delivering. The pace was there. Some consistent results were there. Ne- still never got the podium, did he? I know that wasn't a great bike, but I still feel like that 2020 experiment proved that you'll you'll get better outcomes from Nakagami if you give him a bit more attention. But you're not going to actually get the results in the end. No, but it, it it'd just be like. It'd be a placeholder move if you can't, if you have to work on a longer term strategy with your riders, then have to, having Taka occupy that seat and just keep doing the thing he's doing right now. It does make a bit of sense to me, I I think, but maybe maybe it is right now a, a place for Repsol to actually try to make a splashy move. But I guess I already did it for this year and has not worked even a little bit. So ideally. They would probably have Marcus Rins 
going by what we've seen this season so far, that's probably the Repsol Honda lineup you want. Ideally, they have a completely different bike, but let's, you know, let's leave that. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Hmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Let's uh, look at some other topics that aren't Honda related. And there is there is a bit of a change coming in for this weekend at Silverstone. One that we've been expecting originally at the start of the season. It's on the not especially exciting on paper, but very significant significant topic of tyre pressure monitoring and the potential penalties for it. Uh, I'm going to volunteer Simon to explain explain this one. What's changing for Silverstone? Why didn't it change sooner? And what could the consequences be? So... Uh, since forever, Michelin has had a minimum tire pressure that teams are obliged to use, but we've never had tire pressure monitoring system that was accurate enough to be used to make sure that they were using it. Therefore, it was never introduced. Uh, the system came along at the start of the season. We were told that after three or four rounds, maybe... I can't remember exactly how many, we would uh, have a new system where people would be punished and even disqualified for being under the tyre limit, under the pressure limit, because Michelin see it as a safety issue. Um, being under pressure is dangerous because the tyre can do weird things um, like explode. So we got to the point where it was supposed to be introduced. The teams objected because they said that there was another safety issue by introducing it where... It meant that people would have to start with too much pressure in the tyres. If you got stuck in a battle, the front Michelin tyre, which has a tendency to overheat, would overheat. And then you'd have too much tyre pressure and everyone would fall off. Um, that got kicked down the road and kicked down the road until, rather unexpectedly, we got a, a confirmation from the Grand Prix Commission last week to say, oh yeah, we're bringing it in at Silverstone, but we've changed a little bit how we're going to penalise you for it. So it's, it's now... Uh, time penalties rather than a, a sort of an instant disqualification like it was initially. Um, this has the potential to be huge, to be perfectly honest. I think this is really, really going to upset Ducati in particular because we know that they're the people who struggle with this, who are starting races with tyre pressures that are maybe below what they're supposed to be. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm quite curious to see how it plays out, to be honest. It, in theory, it should play into the hands of Yamaha more than anyone else, um, because I think it's them that they kind of try and abide by the ruling more than anyone else, and it's them who are going to, you know, see more of a benefit from this, because it's them that seems to struggle the most with tyre pressure rising anyway. But it's it's hard to tell how, how much it is going to change things, but, like, we are going to see races decided by this in the next few weeks. Um, I'd be very, very surprised if we didn't because there really is, you know, can't sell it enough. There's a potential here for this to really, really shake things up. So we, we won't we won't have Silverstone decided by this because the first infringement is a warning. Second infringement is three seconds to the race time, 30 seconds, six seconds. Fourth is 12 seconds. 
and then fifth, sixth, seventh, I don't know. Fifth, sixth, seventh is probably you get a, a visit from Dorna telling you to knock that knock that off. Scary. Um I've had those. <laughs> and did you did you knock that off? No, I didn't. So yeah. you know, take from that what um, you will. No, I was gonna say, and he's still in the paddock, so it's worked out fine. Yeah, it's trying to trying to think of like on, on the one hand, that is it is an interesting sort of development, and maybe kind of though that is not the intention, it might make things a bit more interesting in the second half of the season. But it's also you know nobody likes post race time penalties. Nobody particularly enjoys that. I think the so the the monitoring will be that it's not that if you're below the tire pressure once, then you're automatically penalized. It's you, it has to be for a certain amount of laps in the race. Um, I'm not sure if they monitor it live or if they take the readings off after the race. Do, do you know, Simon? I think there is the capability to do it live because it, it feeds into They the... have to do it live and they have to feed all that data to the broadcast, basically. That's the only way to make this a palatable yeah. TV product because otherwise, yeah. if you incorporate that into sort of part, it is a little still artificial and there's going to be a lot of people who really hate it. Because, you know, when we get a track limits penalty, everybody loses their mind. Oh, yeah. But it's still the lesser evil compared to the prospect of the winner rocking up to Park for me than having the data re- read off and getting plus 12 seconds and ending up classified 11th. Everybody's going to really hate that. We've never had quite full panic stations from riders talking about it. In terms of safety, yes, they, they're not happy. But in terms of, like being unable to comply there's been i think a general confidence at least projected publicly that even you know sort of the ducatis can get it done if needed the question is then how much this slows them up we'll see it is going to be interesting and i have the feeling that we're going to have a lot of cranky riders on thursday because this is not a particularly popular measure i cannot remember one single rider being like yes let's introduce this this is good. I mean, as Simon says, the Yamahas maybe were the least bothered, but even they weren't like, yes, do it. Do it now. So we'll see. But it's it wasn't a writer's decision. I don't know if they got MSMA to sign off on it, the Manufacturers Association. I think what they're saying is they got the Manufacturers Association to agree that this is something that needs to happen at some point, and they've decided that some point is now, but we'll we'll find out closer to the thing it, it is interesting it is a, an interesting in-season curveball certainly and i do hope it's better for safety but we'll see because the, the the front tire pressure spiking is also it is not a great prospect and we've avoided critical tire failures so far with people running lower pressures than ideal but it only takes one like the one time it goes it can be really really bad so you can see why that isn't something anybody particularly wants to to see happen before they take action. That that's the, the sort of the weird catch twenty two of this. We are going to see more people crash because of this, and we've never seen what could happen if it went really really wrong with Michelin. Um, we can if you look back. I think uh, uh, there was a Kawasaki that had a tire explode in the Bridgestone era. 
Yeah. Nakano, Shinya Nakano. Couple of them, yeah. I think. But, but yeah, I think you know, it was or the same rider twice. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. yeah. yeah the, the, the other, the only thing that has ever come close with Michelin was uh, Loris Baz having one go in the Sepang start finish straight uh, because he got a puncture yeah. in it. And, but that shows the potential for you know absolute destruction yeah. that there is here. Um, and we, we we've just seen in in World Superbikes, which is Pirelli. We've just seen top right grass get Leoglu yeah. get chucked into into the air by a tire. I think it's delaminating yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. I don't remember the exact word they use, but yeah, basically a, a tire going when it wasn't which supposed is, to go. Which is probably which, what we'd see in this situation. It would delaminate yeah. and then it would explode. Yeah. Yeah. Which thankfully didn't hurt top rack, but did effectively change the, the course of the championship battles that is happening right now. So, you know, it, because of that, how that crash looked, I, I, I sort of understand the trade-off between, you know, front tire over pressure folding and the tire just going pop and you're flying into space. But it's still like, it's very easy to see both sides of the coin, I think, especially with the fact that we haven't seen the tire failure that would have been the impetus for this change. But at the same time, if we had seen it, everybody would rightly go, well, why do you have to wait for this to happen to do something? I wonder if uh, tire pressure monitoring system would be on the list of things Casey Stoner is not that impressed about, about modern MotoGP. We, it's not a current topic as such because Casey, Casey Stoner is obviously not on the grid these days. But during the summer break, one of Simon's trips was to the Goodwood Festival of Speed, which had quite a big MotoGP presence. Um, he did write a column for the race website about how maybe MotoGP should have maximised that presence a bit more. But the thing that, uh, that readers really got interested in was a chat Simon and some other journalists had with Casey Stoner, where the double MotoGP world champion basically absolutely laid into the state of the series these days and particularly the rules package um, we're going to share some of casey's thoughts with you now have you all been anyway i'd like to make some changes but <laughs> like knows that they can't do it though. ringlets They're gone just, yeah. ride height device gone anti-wheelie gone <laughs> traction control limited to a safety reason nothing more no no advantage like half this shit needs to go yeah. cost needs to come down uh there needs to be a cap on rules that has to to be there for 10 years so that all manufacturers can reasonably uh catch up to each other and not keep sort of moving this this imaginary rule system that doesn't seem to be there even when i was back there i remember people going oh, i don't know worry we can change the rules to fit that like it's just uh, what's the point of a rule if you change it to whenever you want Okay, so Simon, I'll start with you because you were there when Stoner said this. What is he right? First of all, I think that's the best way of approaching this. I mean, yes, he is right from a from a certain perspective. If you look at things from Casey's perspective, then he is absolutely correct in that MotoGP has got to the point now where the electronics are making it easier to be faster. Um. The, the the sort of the bigger question, the bigger philosophical question about whether he's right or wrong means you have to consider what you want from MotoGP. Do you want it to be a championship that's all about rider skill where the best guys in the world are riding the bikes to the best of their ability? Or do you want a championship where you've got a big group of guys, all of whom are fast, um, knocking, barging, you know, smashing into each other and winning races at the end of it? Um, Casey is harking back to a different era that he was a part of in in some ways. And it wasn't as interesting an era. It wasn't as entertaining an era as we have right now. 
but we had four guys who were head and shoulders above everyone else and who made it very entertaining because of those four guys. Um, you know, Stoner, Marquez, or Stoner, Stoner, Lorenzo, Pedroza and Rossi. If Valentino Rossi was not one of those four, if it had been Mark Marquez, for example, I don't know if it would have been as entertaining. I don't know how much of this is the Rossi effect and whether or not that, that kind of, you know, tints our view of it. But I, I understand Stoner's argument. I understand his point. Um, he essentially wants Ryder Aids cut back to the point where there is safety net, but where using them slows you down rather than uh, speeds you up. Um, and yeah, it's it's a tricky one because I completely get what he's saying. And I think it would make... What's the correct way to say this? It's, it's not going to make racing better to watch but it would make watching the fast guys better it would it would you know it, there, there's nothing as the, the in my time in MotoGP there's been nothing as cool to watch as Jorge Lorenzo in full flow on one of those races where he leads from start to finish he just looks incredible watching it is just superb um and, and we don't really have that anymore because it's, it's not the same watching these guys because everything looks so much more controlled now and and you know as we heard, Casey made an excellent point about the onboard cameras, or not the onboard cameras, the slow motion cameras, where it doesn't look as exciting as it did anymore because everyone's got that safety net. Um, he's not looking to make it more dangerous. Like That's definitely not what he's saying here. But he definitely, he wants a change, and I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I don't know how I stand on it either, honestly. And I think part of it also just has to be nostalgia or at least growing older for for all of us basically i i I definitely don't think there's a skill issue in modern MotoGP. i do think sort of casey's route into it would introduce more differentiators in pace which is bad for the show it's not it's not great but it is arguably good for safety it is part of that same argument that peko banyai got shelled for even though he was basically more or less correct in what he was trying to say, just say it a bit clumsily, is, you know, if you have 20 bikes that can all go, like, within five-tenths of each other, it's going to be risky and it's going to be cagey because they're also still very, very fast bikes, but they're just so evenly matched. And if you strip stuff back a bit, the pace gets differentiated a bit more. Maybe people don't push as hard all throughout the weekend. Maybe some of the people who know what they've got is 12th place, they just ride to 12th place all the time. They start and they settle into 12th place and they finish in 12th place and they're 40 seconds down in 12th place. Uh, for safety, that genuinely, that might be better, especially if you still keep the electronics as a it's this safety-only measure. Uh, I mean, the wings and devices stuff, I just, I just probably write about. Although, again, wings as a stability feature have been talked about by riders. And I don't want to dismiss that out of hand just because I think they look ugly. They being the wings, not the riders. <laughs> um, I I see where he's coming from, but it, I'm always very cautious about, you know, sort of better in the old days rhetoric. Some of those, you know, some of those races from back when I started watching were crap. Just not very good. Let's be honest here. Let's call things what they are. Uh, when the top four is split by 30 seconds instead of the top 15, that's worse. That is clearly worse. When a rider starts in, in P1 and ekes out a five-second gap immediately 
and then finishes 20 seconds ahead, that's not great. It's more not great when you know that's going to happen heading into the weekend. And when it's, you know, when it's always the same four guys, even if you really enjoy those four guys, when some of those four guys are a bit off their game, then suddenly you have a real dud garbage weekend on your hands, which we don't really have right now in MotoGP, even when there's a clear leader, even as right now when we have a rider who is a clear favorite for the title and often a clear favorite going into most Sundays, there is still enough intrigue that did not exist in that old MotoGP, I feel. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's you know that's my recollection of it and that's it is very important to the to the quality of the show yeah i'd broadly agree on the nostalgia point there i mean i I started following MotoGP towards the end of rossi's original title run and then got really really into it during the start of the stoner era and i my recollection is very much like the two of you have said there were a lot of races where those four guys were going around showing enormous skill but they set into their positions after the first few laps and then they rode a couple of seconds apart for the rest of the race and you didn't really get much of a mid-race change not a lot of variety now i would say a few races this year have felt a bit flat like that at times the worst races a lot of them really haven't i still think it's been a great season but it has edged a little bit more to that this season but i think that's partly just a function of how many injuries we've had how few riders for, for various reasons are on top of the game at the same time on some weekends so yeah i do think i'm, I'm never I never really buy into kind of better back then theories because I think most of them are just wrong and I think this one is. So I should say, well, Will Casey was talking about MotoGP these days not being what it was in his era. He was a lot more effusive about an era even before his. This is what he had to say after trying some 500cc bikes for the very first time after a chance chat with Kevin Schwantz and Kenny Roberts Jr. at Goodwood. You said in Friday you must get the chance to ride a 500. You got to ride one now. What was it like? Um, I'd say this is definitely one of my best days in motorsport, you know, not only at 500, it was Kenny's and Kevin's, you know, I was four years old when, when Kevin was riding that one, um, and so yeah, I mean, I never got the chance to ride a two-stroke, that's what my whole life was built up around going to the 500s and riding that, and unfortunately I missed out by that much, so I never got the chance to really, um, you know, ride a 500 in anger, and I still haven't, yeah. but um, just to feel it feel how light they are and this raw power that there's there's no way to explain it the difference between MotoGP currently and those um, I've said it for a long time even in my era there's way too much going on this is this is real this is an art form this is danger um, this will bite you in the ass real quick compared to what they got these days and nobody will possibly understand that until you ride that and probably get launched to the moon yeah, yeah, yeah. you cannot describe it until you feel it and then the riders that are currently on the bikes now if they had a chance to ride that they would understand okay uh, what we do isn't so bad so yeah that is extremely endearing but it also the thing that that made me think is as much as we all look at technology from past eras in different types of motorsport and go oh that's so much more larry that's so much more fun to watch as a pure spectacle of how that machine is being driven or, or ridden sport is about improvement and refinement and about doing things better and okay at the moment MotoGP in a way has some open goals if it wants to kind of pull things back technically you can limit rider rates from where they are now you can limit where error can be placed compared to where it is now so the op- those options do exist but you do that and Gigi Delenia and everyone else will find some more ways to make the bike more effective through different gray areas and loopholes and they will they will diminish the role of the rider because the rider is the most variable part of the package a lot of the time and that's what 
in a technology-based sport, you're trying to remove the variables that get in the way of performance. And if you can make it more dependent on something you can control, you're going you're gonna to do that. So I, I see where Stoner is coming from. I love his passion about it. Um, also reminded me, actually, it made me think of some Michael Schumacher comments that we came across recently on our Bring Back V10s podcast series about 1990s F1 where um, Schumacher absolutely laid into McLaren's David Coulthard, not at a time when Coulthard had driven into him or anything, or they had any kind, of, any kind of controversy. He was just asked for his thoughts about Coulthard's progress and title chances, just basically was rubbish. And the riders and drivers in those eras were so much more outspoken than now, because I think culture was so much more outspoken than now. You had bigger characters, because people are just a little bit nicer these days than they were in sort of Stoner and Rossi's heyday. And I have to say, as a parent, I approve of that because I'd rather have um, empathetic, kind role models for my kids. As a website editor, I do kind of miss it a little bit. Well, yeah, it's also because there wasn't really so much of a thing as a website editor at that point, which <laughs> does not... I'm serious. Like, no, that's, that's the thing because you say something like that these days and it's on the website being put there by the website editor 30 seconds later. And that's not a, that's not a problem. That's not something, I think, bad that we're doing. That's just... No, it's... It's where it goes next that tends to be the problem, doesn't it? Yeah, it's how it is. And then, and then you get seven thousand people on Twitter or X, as it's brilliantly called now, calling you names and sending you pictures of your home and home address because nobody, nobody can handle any sort of conflict anymore. Even though they pine for said conflict and say, "Oh, it's boring how sanitized everybody is," but then the second somebody like Peko Banyai says something a little controversial about. Um, you know about the the mixture of the factory and the satellite bikes and how they compare he's immediately a huge fraud who needs to be blasted repeatedly on social media that's a completely different point has nothing to do with this podcast but you clearly you touched the sore spot there yeah i i know i know i think i have found something that was better back then (laughs) (laughs) social media when there was a bit less of it the podcast is broken Yeah, we've got onto modern social media and it has uh, it has broken the podcast. Um, possibly something that Simon can start a social media fight about after this episode's finished, though, because that is no, also... No, that does not sound like Simon to me. <laughs> I pride myself on the ability to start a social media fight about anything. <laughs> we hadn't noticed at all. <laughs> so thank you for your time again this week, listeners. Hope you had a good break during the summer if you took some time away from motorsport while MotoGP wasn't here. We'll be back. Was that an option? No, well, I was going to say, like, we spent this break covering F1 for me and Fowler, in your case, going to Superbikes and Goodwood, so... And Supercross and Road Racing. Good effort. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm impressed with that. We'll be back, as you'd expect, straight after the British Grand Prix at Silverstone this weekend, bringing you all the controversies, whether they be tyre-based, collision-based, Honda Exodus-based. We'll be debating it all Sunday night. And Freddie Spencer-based. Freddie Spencer-based, yeah, I'm sure will be some of that in your ears Monday morning and then you can tweet at Simon about it straight afterwards thanks for your time we'll speak to you again then The Athletic As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.